6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Nehemiah, chapters 9 through 11. We're in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we should finish the book this evening, the book of Nehemiah. 9 through 11 in this session, and then we'll have an additional session for the remaining two chapters, 12 and 13. And that will complete the uh, string of so-called historical books of the Old Testament. Just a little bit by way of review, obviously the Babylonian captivity, which which was done in three sieges, um, launching the servitude of the nation, 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings brought us to the threshold of that, where they went into the Babylonian captivity. And uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel were the prophets in those days. But now we're out of the Babylonian captivity. The, the, the Cyrus came, and uh, uh, he's, a, he's an incredible guy, the Gentile king, whose name was announced in the Scripture two centuries before the fact. And he finds this letter written to him in Isaiah, uh, and uh, in which he takes God's challenge and refrees when he conquers Babylon, he frees the Jews to go home. In fact, gives them financial incentives. Only about less than 50,000 went with Zerubbabel to the... Uh, so that launched the Persian, uh, Persian Empire, of course, but it, it took uh, about 40, well, roughly 50,000 to go with Zerubbabel to begin with. And then some years later, Ezra brings another couple of thousand. The prophet Haggai is uh, operative in this period. And now we've finished Ezra... Which he was the priest, and he focused on the rebuilding of the temple. But the real problem in a, in a, in a uh, social, political sense was they couldn't defend themselves. They had to build the wall. So Nehemiah, who was, in, who was the cupbearer to the king and apparently had a great relationship with King Artaxerxes, got permission to rebuild the city. Very, very key milestone because that, trigger, that decree of Artaxerxes ends the desolations of Jerusalem. Servitude of the nation and desolation of Jerusalem are both 70 years, but they're not coterminous. Servitude starts with the first siege and ends with the decree of Cyrus. The desolations of Jerusalem start with the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar, in which he levels the city of Jerusalem and uh, goes to the decree of Artaxerxes. Also 70 years. Both of these 70-year periods are to the day, which is astonishing in itself. And, uh, and of course, the decree of Artaxerxes triggers the 70 weeks of Daniel. We covered that when we covered Nehemiah chapter 2. That's just by way of quick background. Between Ezra's chapter 6 and 7, we insert the book of Esther. It doesn't show up in the book, but that's historically where it occurred. Again, during the Persian Empire, and, and her, uh, the drama of Esther uh, saved the Jews from extinction, extinction. Haman being a Hitler type of character, the villain of the piece. Anyway, and Zechariah and Malachi are the prophets uh, over Nehemiah. We're not sure exactly where Malachi fits. We know it's somewhere during the, it's, it's from the content. We know it's in the days of uh, uh, Nehemiah, but scholars argue about exactly where. So in 538, about 50,000 came from Jerubble, under Rubble. 23 years later, the temple was finally built under Ezra. And uh, I, I should say, in the book of Ezra, Ezra shows up 57 years later himself personally, and he documents all that. Uh, 
so there's uh, roughly 52,000 that are accounted for, uh, plus some of those that aren't recorded. Esther is there right in the middle of that, just to give you a quick historical snapshot. And, of course, now we're in the book of Nehemiah, which is about 13 years later, and he obtains authority for Jerusalem, and we've been going through the book. And the key king here is Artaxerxes I, sometimes called Artaxerxes Langemanus, and he's the one whose authority makes possible the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. There are four decrees you'll find in study Bibles and so forth, but three of the four have to do with the temple, only one with the city, and that's what the angel Gabriel had, had mentioned to Daniel uh, centuries before, would, be, would trigger the counting that would predict the exact day that Jesus Christ would present himself as king, riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Great study, uh, just by way of review. But we're in ne- Nehemiah chapter 9, so let's just jump in here. Um, now in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. So we're celebrating here, as you may recall from the last time, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So that's, uh, that's serious. For about three hours they stood as, while the law was read. That's pretty amazing. Most people, after 50 or 60 minutes, sitting in their seats start squirming. And I don't know if, maybe we're doing this wrong. Maybe I should have you stand for uh, three hours. Maybe that would be more effective. Anyway, <laughs> relax. We won't try that. Um, anyway, uh, for then for another three hours, they confessed their sins. That's where we'd have a problem. It'd probably take us more than three hours to go through all our sins. But anyway, uh, and I don't mean to be flippant, but it's, uh, you have to, it, it, is, it is impressive. These, uh, they're, they're, in other words, uh, they're, they're, the nation is back, out of captivity. They now have a temple so they can reinstitute their, their um, mosaic Judaism. And, I'll, and I, as I mentioned that, I should point out, when you use the term Judaism, you, in, you invite some real confusion. Because today, what, you, what we know as Judaism is Talmudic Judaism that derives from the, in the, during the first century, the, the Council of Yamne. You have to understand that Judaism has a... In 70 A.D., the Jews had a real problem. Because the Torah, the books, of, the, the books of the law, point out that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Well, they have no place to shed blood. There's no temple, there's no altar, etc. they got a problem. And it's not a temporary thing that's out for a few weeks. It was gone. And so they end up, in effect... I don't mean to be unjust, I don't mean to be too cavalier about it, but they basically re-rationalized their form of worship, into a work strip to somehow do good as a compensation. And Talmudic Judaism, the kind of Judaism in its various forms today, is quite different than the Mosaic Judaism as outlined in the Torah, if you're strict about it. And so you need to, uh, when you, if you get into that, be careful with your terminology. It's very fascinating to me in Russia, I uh, discovered there was a group called the Karaites. And the Karaites, this is in about the 6th century on, as I recall, Forget the dates. I'm doing it from memory, but uh, they uh, they were a group of Jews settlements, Jewish settlements in Russia that insisted upon rejecting Talmudic Judaism and staying with Mosaic Judaism. And because they separated themselves from their Jewish friends, being very strict about their observance, the Tsar didn't treat them 
I mean, didn't, didn't impose upon them all the burdens they put on the Talmudic Judaism. The double taxation, the pogroms, all the abuses, they were exempt from. I think there's an irony there that's rather, you know, uh, provocative. Um, because they were uh, 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 not identified by the czar as part of the, the problem, if you will. So that uh, I thought was rather interesting. And I don't know how many of those groups, you know, survive through the, you know, it's made, we tend to map history by the major, major movements. If you read a, a history of, uh, uh, of Europe, they speak of Christianity, what they really mean is Roman Catholicism. To, to, to a secular mind, it's you know, part of the same package. But if you're dis- biblically discerning, there's a huge difference because there were more Christians murdered by one pope in one afternoon than all the Roman Caesars put together because the, the bloody, the, you won't understand the history of Europe unless you understand the struggle of, for temporal power by the Vatican. But the point is, it's probably this very similar thing within Judaism because we think of Judaism in its traditional forms. There were probably pockets of Jews that... Uh, clung to the Mosaic Judaism uh, throughout the centuries. Anyway, moving on. Got off the subject here a little. Uh, let's see, we got all the way down to verse 4, didn't we? Uh, then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani, Kadmiel, Shebani, uh, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Now, this chapter will be like some of the others we've had. There's going to be lots of lists of names, and you wonder... What on earth is in those lists of names? Now, actually, you can pick out some of those and make an interesting study behind them if you want to take the effort. But the other real point that uh, it occurred to me not that I didn't make before, and I probably should, is uh, these people are recorded in here because of what they did. Some were Levites, priests, singers, whatever. And they were, their names are recorded in the Word of God. And you sort of say, gee, what's the point? I mean, uh, we're going through this. It may have been important to them, important back then. Why is it important to us? Well, there's probably a number of lessons, one of which is to realize God still keeps his records. And your name is in his book. If you're in Christ, your name is in the book of life. The things you've done for him, the thing that pleases God, are recorded. They may not be in your Bible, but they will be recorded in heaven. And so as we see these names and realize that to us, these are ancient names long past, no, no, if they're, if they're, we're going to meet these people. Uh, and likewise, there are uh, our efforts, the fruits of our efforts, are also a matter of God's record. So we might keep that in mind. Anyway, verse 5, then the Levites, Joshua, Kadmiel, Bene, Hashaman, uh, a bunch of the other names I'm mispronouncing, Hodijah, Shebaniah, Petathiah, uh, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. These are several of these Levites. Some were mentioned back in chapter 8. Uh, were involved in leading the people, of course, in this praise. Five of the eight Levites are listed in the group of eight in verse 5. Anyway, the, uh, they, may, they may have been the same or they may have been different men. We're not sure. But um, these are on the stairs or literally the ascent, if you will. Some part of the temple conflicts had uh, arise there, if you will. Now, from verse uh, 5 on, till about verse, uh, till, till, well, actually, all the way until a, a good part of the way in chapter 10, is, follows a structure of a covenant form. There's a preamble of a couple of verses, 5 and 6. Then there's a historical prologue from verses 7 through 37, where they recount all the things God has done for them. And then from verse 38 into about, for the next from about verse 20, uh, 38 in chapter 9 down to verse 29 of chapter 10, there is the acceptance of a covenant. They're going to 
agree to a covenant in writing. And uh, we'll talk about that as we go. And then there's some stipulations at the end that uh, finishes chapter 10. Now, these, uh, the, these first uh, uh, half a dozen verses for, through 31 are voiced by the Levites on behalf of the nation. And, of course, it will recount the major events in Israel's history. And we could spend three weeks if we want to take each verse and break it down. But I'm going to assume, for most of you, this should be familiar ground. If not, you, can, you should know enough at this point with your Bible to be able to track down the background in your own study. Let's go to verse 6. So they continue, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with their, all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram, who brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gave us the name of Abraham. I think we've covered that before, that when you change Abraham to Abraham, all you do is add a he, which is one of the 22 Hebrew letters, in the middle of the name. The he is a breath. It's like, an, it's like our H, very, very similar. You remember, uh, if you remember uh, Eliza Doolittle in... Um, thank you, My Fair Lady. Um, or, or Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, the play. Um, Henry Higgins, the tutor, made Eliza Doolittle... Per, she, she, being a cockney, she didn't have H's, so he had, she had to learn how to make H's. So she had a, you know, in, in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly happen. And she had to say that to blow out a flame and so on. So uh, uh, that, that's that, that same exercise to pronounce English properly uh, is what uh, the he requires in the Hebrew. The point is the he is a breath which is synonymous with spirit. The pneuma in the Greek or the ruach in the Hebrew is breath or wind or spirit. Same, same word. So what God did by changing Abraham to Abraham, he infused in him the spirit of God. And that's why it's pronounced differently in the breath. Same with Sarai. Uh, to Sarai to Sarai, just adding a, a, a hey again. I'm always fascinated by that, that uh, in the Hebrew, the letters of the alphabet, the 22 letters of the alphabet, are not only phonetic, like in most languages, they're conceptual. And the first letter is an aleph, which is supposed to look like sort of long a skull of a cattle, an ox. So it represents strength, or since the first letter, leadership. And uh, the second letter is like, looks like a little teepee on a line. It's, it's, it later became our B, but it, flat it was called a beth, a beth, which means house. Bethlehem, house of bread, beth, the letter beth. Uh, uh, an aleph and a beth is the leader of the house. It's the name for father. Ab or Abba, huh? If you put a he in the middle of it, you get the essence of the father. So Ahab is the essence of the father. It's the Hebrew word for love, which is the essence of the father. So as you start getting into this, it blows you away to realize that this language is vastly more complicated than the, the very rigorous, very precise languages that we're used to. Like Greek is far more precise and than probably any other language on the planet Earth. Larger vocabulary, the, gram- the grammatical rules are incredibly strict. Therefore, it's incredibly descriptive in terms of precision or engineering or what have you. But there's a richness of expression conceptually in the Hebrew. The second, and it also lends itself to encryption and bandwidth compression, and that's a whole other thing. I don't want to get in my PhD there. Let's go get back here. Anyway, uh, we got all the way down to verse 7. We're doing great. Verse 8, and fondness... And found us his heart faithful before thee. Continuing what God has been doing for them and talking about Abraham. 
found us his heart faithful before thee, and made us a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and the Gergesites. To give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. And didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. Now he's shifting from Abraham now to the days of Pharaoh and so on. Thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardest thy cry by the Red Sea, and showedest signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and upon all his servants, upon all the people of his land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them, so didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. You know, it's interesting how repeatedly throughout the entire Bible, one of the medals, so to speak, idiomatically speaking, on, on the chest of God, is this whole issue of what happened in the Red Sea in, in Egypt. The Bible is full of miracles, many dramatic ones, but it's interesting to notice how that particular drama that we're all familiar with becomes a major emblem or uh, identity piece, if you will, with the God of the universe. It's interesting how that has been elevated to something far more than it would seem on the face of it, miraculous though it was and so on. Anyway, moving on, verse 11. And thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. You know, I'm always amused by the skeptics who say, well, there was a big wind and certain times of the year, this particular region, which they can't identify, by the way, but they say this particular region uh, only had a few feet of water. See, they're asking for a bigger miracle than they record in the Bible. They're, they're saying that the entire Egyptian army drowned in three feet of water? You know, it doesn't quite compute if you follow me. Okay. So anyway, let's move on. Verse 12, Moreover thou lettest them in a day by the cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. What is that pillar called? Come on, gang. Shekinah. Or Shekinah or Shekinah, however you bet. And a cloudy, cloud by day and a pillar by fire by night. Thou camest down. Oh, oh by the way, because we're going to get into this later. While they're wandering the wilderness, the Shekinah was a cloud during the day, pillar of fire by night. Where was it when the temple was built? Above the ark, in the Holy of Holies. You betcha. That's going to be important too as we get later. Let's move on. Verse 13. Thou camest down also upon the Mount Sinai. See, now it's shifting again at the Ten Commandments. We're now at Exodus 19. And spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws and good statutes commandments. And if you're in, in a school situation, you'll have to discern that it between judgments, laws, statutes, and commandments. They're not the same thing if you want to be academic about it. But as far as you and I are concerned, I think we both understand you're supposed to follow them, whatever they are. Okay. And made us known of them by thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant, and gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. So there we have the manna, of course, and we have the smiting of the rock, which happened twice, you may recall, and uh, so on. So just a, a quick summary here of their history. But they and our fathers dealt proudly, uh-oh, and hardened their necks, and hearkened not to thy commandments, and refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and for six and not. It's interesting, I can remember when the Ten Commandments movie first came out as a movie, 
uh, we had some discussions with some friends of ours that weren't believers particularly. They weren't, they were, if, if anything, maybe just denominational not, uh, Christians. But uh, they were really stunned by the portrayal in the Ten Commandments, the realization that after all these things that happened, you know, they had all the miracles of the ten plagues, and then they had the death of the firstborn, and then they're on their way out there. And the first little thing, uh, Dathan, you know, organizes a rebellion. We've got to go back to, they want to go back to Egypt. The, the, the people, uh, very common view, couldn't believe that this, this, this people, having seen firsthand these incredible dramatic episodes, would not be totally absorbed with God and, and would be so ready to go back to the bondage of Egypt. And, of course, the Bible portrays them as a stiff-necked people and so forth. But you know what's interesting? As we watch them and as we look at them maybe critically, we, <laughs> we need to look in the mirror. Because whatever they've seen, we have record of. And on top of that, we have so much more. We have so much more to be thankful for than they did. And um, still, we find it convenient to put it on the back burner. And it's maybe, you know, it's item nine on a list of ten. It's not, it should be item one on a list of one is what it should be. Anyway, moving on. Okay, verse 18. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. By the way, can you imagine how God must have felt about that? After all this, you know, almost deliberate drama, God almost, you know, uh, he's got Pharaoh where he's, you know, he's almost creating the excuse to show himself strong, you know. And, and after this dramatic demonstration that he's the God of Israel and, and he, he succeeds in getting them uh, miraculously delivered through the Red Sea, they're now at Sinai and so forth. And uh, so the minute he and Moses go off from the hill to talk a little bit, <laughs> come down, they're making a golden calf, which is a symbol, among other things, of going back to Egypt, worshiping the, the culture and the background that they came from. Astonishing. You know, there, there, there's no way, I think, for you and I to understand the insanity of paganism. There's no way we can understand the bloodshed that's been spilled before idols. Um, astonishing and yet um, that's the, that's the, that's that's man's history anyway they, they continue with uh, even though that they went out of their way to provoke God he says yet thou in thy manifold mercies I want you to know by the way you notice even in the Old Testament if you watch for it it underscores that God is a God of mercy there is a myth that runs around by the naive superficial reader that the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful God and the God of the New Testament is love and so forth no, there's one God. He changes not. And we need to understand His whole nature. And not just His, not any kind of uh, casual permissiveness. That's not what His mercy is all about. His mercy is a very passionate love. And the predicament that was solved at the cross was not just ours, it was His. Because He wants to love us, but He can't violate His justice. And so as you really understand that. But as you go through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, watch and realize how it underscores again and again and again that God is a God of mercy. Anyway, they continue to praise here, saying, Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. 
Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, for forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. And there's other pastors who say their shoes did not wear out. Forty years! Johnson Murphy, eat your heart out. No, there we go. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into corners. So they possessed the land of Sihon, and the land of king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. Now, those of you that are in research moods, check out Bashan and the king of Bashan and find out who he was. He was the king of the giants. He was a Nephilim called a Rephaim in that language. And a very, very interesting background there. Very spooky stuff. These are the unsavable ones. These are the, the Rephaim cannot rise, Isaiah tells us. And that leads a mystery that I have yet to find anyone really solve. When Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, as exemplified by the words in Psalm 22, he says, The bulls of Bashan have encompassed me about. What on earth is he talking about? You talking about the cattle from the Golan Heights? No. He's talking about demon spirits of some kind. Spooky stuff if you peel the onion and get into it. But let's move on. Verse 23, Their children also multipliest thou as the stars of heaven. That's a bunch, gang as the stars of heaven, and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. A small point, probably debatable, but I'll share it with you so when you encounter it, you won't be surprised. The scripture seems to indicate that the descendants of Abraham are as the sand of the sea and the stars in the heaven. Both phrases are used of the descendants of Abraham. They may be just figures of speech, nothing more, but some scholars suggest the possibility that the sand of the sea are the earthly descendants of Abraham, and the stars of the heaven are the the, uh, uh, faithful that embrace the faith of Abraham. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Nehemiah. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.